You're listening to The Trainumentary. On this episode, we visit with producer Michael Cascuna. I first bought a Coltrane record in 1962, and it was called Live at the Village Vanguard. At the time, I was just getting into jazz. I mean, I was listening to Dave Brubeck and Ahmed Jamal and a lot of mainstream players from the 50s. And there was something about this record that just captivated me, the tune spiritual especially. It just drew me in almost into like a hypnotic trance. And I had not listened to anything that advanced at that time, but it locked itself on my soul and just wouldn't let go of me. And it wasn't till the next year or two that I worked my way back and discovered uh, my favorite things and Giant Steps and Blue Train and all the prestige recordings. I sort of picked up Coltrane halfway through his evolution and he spoke to me like very few artists ever have. Great music by a great artist is something that reaches you or it doesn't. In the case of John Coltrane, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I don't think I could ever verbalize the the hold that his music had on me, except to say that like Ray Charles' singing voice or Miles Davis' trumpet, his tenor sax had an incredibly human-like sound and it had a, a voice that just reached very deep into me. No matter what he was involved in, no matter what he was doing, whether he was playing standards in a conventional way or playing with Miles Davis or playing modal music with his own group or playing very free music with Pharaoh Sanders, when Coltrane was playing it always commanded my attention and it always reached me in a very very emotional way. I was fortunate enough being born in 1948 and being born in the New York area to have seen the classic John Coltrane Quartet with McCoy Tyner and Jimmy Garrison and Elvin Jones dozens of times. John Coltrane was a family man and I later found out that he purposely kept the group working in New York as much as possible so they wouldn't be away from home a lot. And so he would play at least two weeks a year at the Half Note, he'd play two weeks a year at Birdland, he'd play two weeks a year at the Village Vanguard, at the Jazz Gallery. Uh, He'd be all over town at different points uh, during the year so that you could could conceivably go see him 48 times a year if you had the time and the money. And to this day, I don't think that there is a more exciting and more moving experience than hearing the John Coltrane Quartet live. When they played, it was four people who were totally unique in their approach to their instruments. They really all had a completely different concept of how to play jazz drums, jazz piano, jazz bass, jazz sax than anybody else. And it all worked together. I find it amazing that they all found each other and that it all worked that well together because the whole was far greater than the sum of the parts, as great as all of those parts were. And the music was at once uh, spiritual and it was also very sexual. I think every performance by that group was a lot like the sexual act. Foreplay, building up an orgasm and then that really loving peaceful time at the end of sex where where two people that love each other just relax and you know wallow in each other that was very much the way that music was shaped to me it's not exclusive of the spirituality but i think it goes hand in hand with itself 
You know, Coltrane was was like Miles Davis. He was someone that was constantly changing, constantly evolving. And as much as everybody loved him, he really had the ability to piss people off. I remember going up to Roland Kirk's apartment on a Saturday afternoon, and I came in and Roland said, have you heard the new Coltrane record? I said, no, I was going to ask you about that. He said, oh my God, you got to hear this thing. It was Ascension. And he said, he's gone too far. I think he's gone too far this time. We sat down and listened to Ascension, and it, it sounded like an LSD trip to me. It, it later made a lot more sense to me. But it, it's interesting how people today are still arguing over various aspects of Coltrane's career, and they're doing it with the, with the vehemence uh, as if it was something they had just heard yesterday, even though the music is 40 years old. Coltrane was someone who was always deeply in self-discovery. And a lot of us were so under a spell that we, even when something didn't reach us, we gave him the benefit of the doubt. I remember in February 1966 going to a concert at Lincoln Center called The Titans of the Tenor. And because records didn't come out a week after they were recorded, I was going expecting to see the quartet with McCoy and Elvin and, and Jimmy Garrison. But instead, uh, out came Alice Coltrane and Rashid Ali and Jimmy Garrison. I was in the first or second and Rowan, they all stood along the apron of the stage. Out came Carlos Ward and Farrell Sanders and Albert Eiler and Don Eiler and John Coltrane. And they let loose. And I felt like I was in one of those gravity machines that I was pitting to a wall. I had no idea what was going on. It was just this ocean of sound. And a lot of people got up and left uh, in the middle of this performance or at the beginning of this performance. But I was transfixed by it. I can't honestly say it was something I liked at the time, but I was under Coltrane's spell and I was also willing to give a searching artist the benefit of the doubt. And that's why people like Coltrane and Miles, no matter where they go, you have to give serious consideration to where they are.
For more information on the program, visit trainumentary.blogspot.com.